The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Appreciate you being here today. I think you're all aware there are times and circumstances in life that make us question why. Have you ever asked, why God? Why this? Why is this happening? You know, several weeks ago, my wife's friend and her husband were vacationing in Hawaii with their daughter who was there to run a race. They were in a head-on collision and they both were killed. Their daughter lived. She was in critical condition for a while. Kathy and I actually talked to her yesterday, FaceTime, and she was moved to rehab, so she is making progress. She has a great attitude. She hopes to come back to the States in the next couple of weeks, but her attitude was, I have to make my life count. The Lord let me live. So, they're believers, and they're vacationing one minute, and they're gone the next. Last week, Kathy's sister called her. They're both crying on the phone. Because a co-worker who was on vacation in the Bahamas, they were on their first day in the Bahamas vacationing, they went snorkeling, and the wife was killed by a bull shark, attacked and killed. These things make you just say, why? You know, to bring it a little closer to home, you know, Gary and Brenda are struggling, and Gary struggles as he has to watch Brenda struggle to try to do the simplest things. And she suffers, and he suffers watching her. We look at the condition of our country, and we think, why, Lord? Why are you allowing these evil people to destroy this nation? Why is this happening? Well, in light of things like this, I thought we could maybe use some encouragement this morning from the Word of God to comfort our hearts and minds. So this morning, we're going to look at one very familiar verse in the book of Romans, Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, besides maybe John 3.16, this is probably one of the most loved and quoted promises of the New Testament. I'm sure that many of you have this memorized, and there's good reason for that. Life is filled with so many trials and so many troubles. And it's good to know that everything is being worked out according to the plan of our loving God. Now, this verse is often taken out of context, and key words are left out. I've heard it put like this, everything will work out in the end. Well, it's not quite what it says, but (laughs) we need to remember the hermeneutical principle that context is king. All right, this verse didn't just drop out of the sky. You didn't pull it out of a fortune cookie. It needs to be studied in light of its context. And Paul is writing here to the saints at Rome, and he's writing to them during the transition period from the old to the new covenant. The context here is the eschatological suffering of the transition saints. And the all things has to do with the suffering of the body that was being conformed into the image of Christ. 
God has determined, predetermined, predestined that they all be glorified. And therefore, everything that happens works together to that end. That is to say, to their eternal glory. It is fixed. It is unalterable. And the good of which he speaks here is their glorification. They, not us, were being conformed to Christ's image. And sometimes it seems like audience relevance kind of robs us of some of our most precious promises. But they're not really promises if we don't understand them in context. If we don't understand what they're really saying. So the question is, can we apply this verse to ourselves? And my answer would be, absolutely. It's not written to us. It's written to the Romans in the first century. But the truth it teaches is a truth that's taught throughout all of Scripture. And I think when we're done here, hopefully you'll understand that this verse does apply to us. The New American Standard puts it this way, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The NIV puts it this way, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, different translations have interpreted this verse in different ways. Some saw God as the subject, and they translated God causes, like the New American here. Others believe that the all things is the subject, and they render it all things God works, as the NIV does here. Well, there are actually eight different ways to translate these two readings. And so it's kind of a rather complicated textual problem. But whether the subject is God or the subject is all things, it's not really critical to our understanding of this text. Because in either case, the idea is that all things work together for good because of God's agency. All the versions means basically that God is so supreme in charge of the world that all things that happen to Christians are ordered in such a way that they serve our good. Let's break this verse down, try to get its meaning, and then we'll see if we can make application. He says, and we know. It starts with a conjunction, and, and the thought is transitional. This ties in with what Paul has been saying about suffering. The word know is from the Greek, edo, and it means to have seen or perceived, hence to know. And it suggests a fullness of knowledge. Well, how do they know? Well, they know from the revelation of God. They know from what Paul has taught them, from what they have read of the Word of God, that's how they know. He says, all things work together for good. Now, the words work together are from the Greek word synergeo, which is a word from which we get our word synergy. And the term means to cooperate with, to work together, to help someone to obtain something, or to bring something about. <clears throat> now it says that God works all things together, <clears throat> for good. The word for good here is the Greek agathos, and it refers to what is morally good. The text doesn't say that all things are intrinsically good or pleasant. All things are not necessarily good in themselves. We know that, okay? But God works them into good. That doesn't mean He works toward our short-term happiness. He works towards what is best for us, doing what is eternally good, for us, and in us. But in all experiences of life, even the most difficult and painful, God is still at work doing something good. Notice what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 24, 4 and 5. 
Then the word of Yahweh came to me. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. So Jeremiah receives this message from God that he's sending the people into captivity in Babylon for their good. Now, to me, probably to you, being taken captive by a foreign power doesn't sound so good. But God said it was for good. Look at what God says about Manasseh and his captivity in 2 Chronicles 33, 10-11. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and said to his people, But they paid no attention. Therefore, Yahweh brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now that doesn't sound good, does it? But notice the next verse, verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Does that sound better now? See, his captivity wasn't good, but it sure worked good in his spiritual life because it woke him up, it turned him around. Well, how about sin? I mean, can God bring good out of sin? Can all things work together for good when we see so much sin around us? Well, you remember the story of Joseph, right? Gets sold into captivity by his brothers. Why'd they sell him into captivity? They were jealous and they hated him. He was daddy's favorite, and so they didn't like him. And so they said, hey, let's just, uh, first of all, they wanted to kill him. Then they kind of changed my mind. Ah, one of the brothers talking about, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. Let's sell him to the Midianites. So they did that. He ultimately ends up in the hands of the Egyptians. And then, you know, the story, finally, the brethren of Joseph had to put him in a pit. He's brought to Egypt through the providence of God, and and Joseph longing to reveal himself to them, and he finally does. And he weeps out loud, and he falls upon their neck, and he tells the story of his life from the standpoint of God. And he says this in chapter 45, verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself. Now, someone wanted to kill you and threw you in a pit. Would those be your words to them? I don't want you to be distressed or angry with yourself. Because you sold me here. He says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He doesn't do away with the human part of this. Okay, he says, you sold me here. But God sent me before you to preserve life. In verse 8, Joseph says again, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times Joseph tells him that God sent him to Egypt, not them. And in verse 7, He says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. Why did God send Joseph to Egypt? To keep alive for you many survivors. Let me ask you, was it sin for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery? Yeah, they hated him. They were jealous of him. This definitely was sinful on their part. But did God work their sin for good? Absolutely. Boy, that's, it's so important for us to understand because we get wronged a lot by people, okay? And even Christians are going to wrong you, hurt you. You've got to keep this in mind. God's behind things. God controls things. God moves things in the direction He wants them to go. 
Well, meanwhile, while this is going on, think of what was going on with Jacob, Joseph's father. I mean, he lost his son, or he thought he lost his son, Joseph, because the brothers took back a bloody coat that he had given him and said, oh, look at this, your son. Does this belong to your son with the blood all over it? They didn't have DNA, so they couldn't check anything, you know, just blood, he's dead, okay. Then Simeon was kept in Egypt by Joseph, so he said, oh man, now I lost another one. And then he says, I want Benjamin to come here. And so (laughs) that was one of the favorite sons. That was the other son of his beloved wife, Rachel. So in the midst of all this, Jacob says, and Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Now we think you're an idiot, Jacob, because we know the story. We've read the rest of it. We know what's going on. He didn't. And, and you know, if you don't know the rest of the story, you could see how he could act this way. And I guess we can't really blame him. Things didn't really look good for him at this time. How about you? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that like circumstances in your life, everything was against you? I felt that way at times. 44 years ago, I had Guillain-Barre syndrome, and I was totally paralyzed from the neck down. Laying in the hospital, God was trying to get my attention, and he did. But at that time, I was like, man, this is not a good place to be. You know, I didn't know, was I going to be able to walk again? Would I get anything back? Uh, How long is this going to last? I also remember a time (laughs) when I became a preterist, okay, changed my theology, and because of that, I lost my ministry and I lost my income. So, you know, yeah, it kind of felt like all these things were against me. And although at the time, he couldn't see it, everything was working for the good of Jacob. Joseph wasn't dead. He's actually the prime minister of Egypt. That's in a pretty special place there. Simeon wasn't in prison either. He was detained by his brother's heart because he he wanted him there. He wanted to care for him. Only because he wanted Benjamin there, his full brother, did he confine Simon. They were starving in the land, and Joseph was the one who had charge over all the grain that was stored in the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth at that time. When Jacob said, all these things are against me, they weren't at all. I mean, he couldn't have been further from the truth when he said this, but he felt that way. Because he was looking at circumstances and he just felt like it was all falling apart for him. So he says, all these things have come against me. No, they really haven't. Just give it some time here, Jacob. When their father Jacob died, the brothers thought, well, now that Jacob's gone, Joseph's surely going to punish us for what we have done. And they had, I mean, that only makes sense to think that, right? A normal person would have. (laughs) But Joseph comforted them when he said this. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? In other words, he's understanding that vengeance is God's business. I'm not in that place. And then watch what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. Okay, he knew that. They did mean evil against him. That's why they did it to him. But he says this, but God meant it for good. 
Boy, this is a verse, if you don't know this verse, you need to memorize this verse, you need to write this verse down, you need to learn this verse, because people are going to mean evil against you. They're going to do things, they're going to say things, they're going to act against you. You can count on that. But you've got to understand that God means it for good. So Joseph goes down to Egypt, he spends 13 years in slavery, then he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And he becomes prime minister for the good of the brethren that put him in the pit and sold him into slavery. He's put there to help them. And so it really is with every calamity of those who love God, God means it for good. When the beautiful and pure Esther was taken into the harem of the godless Persian king, God was at work for good. When the Pope condemned Martin Luther, God was at work for good. When Charles Spurgeon suffered with attacks on character, God was at work for good. When the 2020 presidential election was stolen, God meant it for good. (laughs) Yes, go to Rumble. You can keep watching, okay? YouTube likes to block things, and they like to screen things, and they like to, you know, all right. (laughs) All right, here's the kicker here, all right? This is the clincher. Get this, all right? All things don't work together for good for everyone. There's a qualifier in this verse, okay? Do you see it? What's the qualifier? For those who love God. Okay? So, all things are working together for those who love God. That, that's who the beneficiaries of this promise are. They're the lovers of God. Okay, so the question here is, who are the lovers of God? Well, I think we'd be prone, you know, one commentator says this. He says, the only thing that I have part in when it comes to having things work for good is whether or not I love God. That's my responsibility in all this. So, things working for good are all up to Him and how He acts? What's that do to this promise? It's like, whoa, it's up to me whether all things work together for good? I guess I'm not, all things are not going to work together for good too well, are they? Now, listen, let me ask you this. Do all believers love God? Here's the thing, before you can really answer that, you need to know if I'm talking about position or practice. In practice, all believers do not love God. And the scripture is clear on that because it defines love as obedience. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love is defined as obedience. By living in obedience to the commands of scripture. All believers are called to love God, but we know all believers don't love God. All right? But here's the question. Positionally, do all believers love God? Yes. Positionally, do we meet the requirements of the law in Christ? Isn't one of the requirements of the law that we love God? So positionally... We are in Christ, and in Christ we are lovers of God. 
Do we have a sacrifice for atonement? Yes, we do. Do we have a temple? Yes, we do. Do we have a high priest? Yes, we do. Are we circumcised? Yes, we are. Do we keep the Sabbath? Yes to all of them, because in Christ, we keep the law. The law is fulfilled. Look at Romans 2, 14. It says, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. Now, the comma here is in the wrong place, which changes the whole meaning of the verse. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, stop, by nature do what the law requires. It makes it sound like they naturally just do what the law requires, but the comma needs to be after nature when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature. In other words, they naturally don't have the law because they're Gentiles. Huge difference here, okay? They don't have the law, but they do the things of the law. And you say, how can they do the things of the law if they don't have the law? Because they're Christians. They've trusted Christ, and the requirement of the law is therefore fulfilled in them. And in the same way that the Gentile Christian who is physically uncircumcised keeps the requirements of the law by faith in Christ, it shows that he has been circumcised in heart. Whenever someone believes the gospel, the Torah is being fulfilled. Their faith fulfills the law. By having faith in Christ, the full requirements of the law are met in us, and therefore we are righteous, we are according to obedience of the law, and therefore we are loving God. Romans 8.4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, this is not a qualifying phrase. It has nothing to do with how we act. This is a descriptive phrase. To walk after the flesh is to seek to live under the law. A Christian is one who does not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit is to trust in Christ and His finished work on Calvary. So this verse doesn't say that we might fulfill the law, but that the law might be fulfilled in us. We're passive. God is the actor here. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us by God. What does the law require? It requires that we love God. It requires faithfulness. It requires righteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hope you understand that we have fully obeyed the law by faith in Christ. That puts us in union with Christ, and Christ fully met the law's righteous requirement, and I share all that Christ is and has. Faith in Christ is obedience to the law. And when Paul talks about those who love God, he's referring to the most basic command of Torah. The first command a Jewish boy would memorize from the Word of God, does anybody know what it was? It's called the Shema. Where is it found? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, <clears throat> Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one. This is Shema. Yisrael, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh Achad. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. <clears throat> According to the Babylonian Talmud, Sukkah 42a, the Jewish boys were taught this biblical passage as soon as they could speak. This would have been the first portion of Torah that Yeshua committed to memory. A devout Jew would recite this twice a day. All right? They're called to love God. 
This is the basis of it, okay? The call to love God. This is the essence of the Jewish faith. This is the first article of the manifesto of Judaism. The Lord our God is one God. And that is repeated throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. God is one. There's no other gods like Him. God will tolerate no other worship. We're to love God. Now understand this. When you believe in this one God, you're doing what Torah required. Ask a Jew, what's the summary of Torah? Well, better yet, ask Yeshua that same question. What is the summary of Torah? How do you... I mean, it's pretty vast, right? 613 commandments and all the, the Tanakh. How do we define that? The Lord said this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what Torah was all about, loving God. And all the commandments we have in the New Testament are simply to tell us, this is how you love God. This is how you love your neighbor. See, so all Christians love God positionally because they're in Christ. But practically speaking, all believers don't love Christ because they don't obey Him. And in our text, Paul is talking about positional love of Christ. And that's clear by the qualifying statement he tells us here for those who are called according to His purpose. See, in this verse in Romans 8, Paul gives the people of God a new epithet. They're God-lovers. In other words, Christians are the true law-keepers. They're the true Israel. Paul is simply giving us another phrase that parallels with saved, redeemed, justified. He's not defining a special category of Christians here. He's talking about all Christians. And we see this clearly by the term called. This word is used in the golden chain of redemption in verse 30 of this chapter. Believers are those effectually called out by the Gospel. And the believer's love for God is ultimately due to God's purpose in calling them to salvation. The word called is kletos. And it must be understood as an effectual call. The beneficiaries of this promise are those who once did not love God, but now do love Him because God has called them effectually from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life. He has planted within them a love to Himself. The effectual call of God is the new covenant fulfillment of the promise in Deuteronomy 30. Remember what God promised? Deuteronomy 36 Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is the promise of the new covenant. And all the called are lovers of God. He says, according to His purpose. What is Paul's reason for adding this phrase? Well, I think it was to make perfectly clear that the call of God originates in God's purpose alone, not ours. The call of God is not a response to anything we purposed, anything we did. God has His own high and holy purposes that govern whom He calls, and He calls according to these purposes, not ours. 
The word purpose here is from the Greek word prothesis, and it means to plan in advance. It comes to mean that which is planned or purposed in advance. Purpose means an intelligent design which the will is bent to accomplish. God has two purposes, our good and His glory. You know, we can really see the force of this little phrase according to His purpose if we look at the one other use of it in Romans, which is in Romans 9.11. Now, in the context of this, Paul is saying, Paul is trying to show that all Israelites are, Paul is trying to show that not all Israelites are true Israelites, Romans 9.6. They are not all Israel that are from Israel. So you see, you've got two different Israels there. Not everyone from Israel, not everyone from physical Israel is a true Israelite. Then in verse 7, he says, they're not all children of Abraham just because they descended from Abraham. And the difference whether one is a true believer or a true child of Abraham depends on God's purpose and God's call, not man's. Notice verse 10 through 12. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the elder will serve the younger. All right? In order that God's purpose. Jacob and Esau, they're in the same womb. They have the same father. They had done nothing, good or bad. They hadn't been born yet. And God sets his favor on Jacob and he hates Esau. Why? Why didn't he wait until they grow up and see which one would choose him? Because they wouldn't choose him unless he chose them first, okay? That's just how it works. Why did God reveal his choice even before they were born? Well, verse 11 gives us the answer. And he uses the very words of Romans 8.28. It says, so that God's purpose of election might continue. He's trying to show you it's, it's about God. God's the one that chooses. Now, this is not fatalism. As if there's blind chance behind things that happen to all believers. This is a plan of a loving Father, and that makes all the difference in the world between the doctrine of fatalism and the doctrines that is taught in the Word of God. This is what theologians call God's eternal decree. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1, states, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Do all things in our lives work together for good? Or was this just true for the transition saints? Well, God has a purpose in everything that happens to us. Our lives are not the haphazard result of the moving of blind chance. All that comes to pass in our lives is according to the eternal plan of the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, great God and our Father. Now, have you ever asked the question, why is this happening to me? You ever been there? I'm sure you have. I, can, I got the answer for you. Okay, get, get ready, write this down. It's happening to you because it's the will of God. God's moral, vi- God's moral will is revealed in the Scriptures 
And we don't have to ask, what's God's will? We know what His will is. Just read the Bible and you'll find out. Yeshua tells us that we're to love God, we're to love our neighbor. Our response to God's moral will is obedience. And as hard as obedience can be, I think the believers have a greater problem with God's sovereign will than His moral will. See, we're to obey God's moral will as revealed in Scripture, but we are also to submit to God's sovereign will of providence. And I think that's where believers have a big problem. God does things and we just rebel, we grind against it, we moan about it. God's sovereign will involves everything that takes place in life. All events in time proceed from His plan, and absolutely nothing takes place by chance. Let me give you a couple things that Scripture reveal about God's sovereign will. First of all, it's certain. Okay, God's sovereign will is absolutely certain. Daniel 4.35 says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven. He does His will now. He's doing the hosts of heaven. Those would be the gods, the angels, among the inhabitants of the earth. That's man. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Nobody can question God. Nobody can stop God. He does what He wants to do. He can't be frustrated. His will can't be frustrated by gods or angels or men. You know, the sinner who tries to defy God may look to God and shake his fist to the heavens, but God determines how many times he shakes it and if he lives to shake it tomorrow. He's sovereign. It is certain. Look at Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, he has a will, a counsel, a plan that was laid out, and everything that happens in time, he's working towards that end. The things that happen in life are simply the outworking of the plan of God. So God's sovereign will, it's absolutely certain. Secondly, it's exhaustive. I think people have a problem with this. But God's will is exhaustive. It includes the germs as well as the galaxy, the fly as well as the pharaoh, the mosquito as well as the monarch. God determines who lands on Park Place. Some of you might be familiar with the poem, For one of the nail, the shoe was lost. For one of the shoe, the horse was lost. For one of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. For one of the battle... The war was lost. If God doesn't control the nails, the smaller things, then anything is out of control. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Sovereignty of God, said one of his childhood heroes, the race car driver, Bill Vukovich, was killed in the Indianapolis 500 when he's going around a turn and a 10-cent cotter pin failed and cost him his life. 10-cent cotter pin. People, if God doesn't control everything, He can't control anything, okay? If He doesn't control that mosquito, that mosquito goes and lands on someone and bites them and it's got malaria and that person dies and God said, oh, I had a plan for that person. Now what will I do? i got to come up with something. God's constantly scrambling because these things are interfering with His life. No, 
It's all planned out. James says, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. Not only are our lives under God's sovereign control, but so are our actions. Think about this. The fulfillment of any one prophecy requires control of the whole universe. Because something could prevent its occurrence. Judas and Pontius Pilate had to be born in a certain century. And therefore their parents had to marry at a given time. And for this, many other conditions had to be carried out. And these conditions depended on even more remote events. Let's take the prophecy of Genesis 15, 13. Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land, not theirs, talking about Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. So God caused Jacob to migrate to Egypt to fulfill this prophecy. So let me ask you, was it possible for Jacob to will not to go to Egypt? Can man's will prevent God's plans from coming to pass? Is it beyond your paradigm to say that God controls men's wills? That's beyond most people's paradigm, okay? They'll let God be sovereign. He can do stuff, but hey, you can't mess with the will of man. I mean, I saw the movies, and they don't let, you know, that's one thing that's really clear. God doesn't mess with man's will. Well, consider this. Abraham moves south to Gerar, the kingdom of Abimelech. And Abimelech said, oh man, did you see that guy's wife? She's beautiful. And he took her. But he didn't have sex with her. Now that's kind of unusual for a king because the kings do whatever they want and they can get away with it because they're king. Why didn't he violate her? Well, the text says in Genesis 20 verse 6, Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Abimelech could not have chosen to lie with Sarah because his will wasn't free. God controlled it. He said, I kept you from sinning. I didn't let you touch her. God's sovereign will is exhaustive. It determines the president's personal plans. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. He takes the king's heart, he makes it go whichever direction he wants that king to go. God determines the numbers that come up when the dice are thrown. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from Yahweh. God rules over all the affairs of men. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings, he sets up kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Do you get that? He removes kings, he sets up kings. So God is involved in politics, okay? Obviously, he places who he wants, where he wants them, because he's God. Daniel 4.25. This is, uh, God's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And he says, you shall be driven from among men. Because Nebuchadnezzar got the big head, he thought he was pretty much something. I mean, kings could, you can understand how king could have that problem. He says, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, 
and you shall be wet with dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're something special, but I'm God, not you. I put you in that place. So let's you go out and act like an animal for seven years until your mind gets restored and you realize that I'm the one in charge here. See, nobody can act outside God's sovereign will or against it. Centuries ago, Augustine said, Nothing therefore happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. Now, I'm going to have to take issue with Augustine here. Because God does not permit. He ordains. Okay, because when we say God permits something, in other words, he really didn't want that, but yeah, he just, oh, okay, I'll let it go. You nag me so much, go ahead and do it. No, that's not biblical. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a plan. He works that plan. He doesn't permit things. He ordains things. God calls all the shots. He rules over everything. Why is that? Because he's God. The sovereignty of God is asserted either expressly or implicitly on almost every page of the Bible. can't read through the Scriptures and not understand how sovereign God is. And I think the Christian who has a mature understanding and trust in God's sovereign plan is spiritually prepared for anything. He doesn't understand why he had to endure some difficulty, but he knows that that experience was part of a sovereign plan of an all-loving God. All of our why is this happening to me questions ultimately have the same answer because our loving God in His sovereign wisdom willed it so. His plan is perfect. Now let's be honest. When circumstances don't go our way, they don't go the way we want them to because we have plans, we have things we want to do. We usually get upset, right? Who are we upset with? Well, God is the ultimate thing we're, person we're upset with, right? I mean, listen, if we believe that God controls everything and nothing happens apart from His sovereign plan, then why would circumstances upset us? You should either just say, I'm glad that's over, you know, or thank you, Lord, or whatever. Just move on because He's controlling it. Circumstances upset us because our will conflicts with God's will. We don't like the plan He has. We had a different plan. And we want it our way, okay? Believer, it's not only important that we live in obedience to God's moral will, it's also very important that we learn to live in submission to His providential will. Because every gripe is against God. Every complaint, every murmur is against God. God, why do I have to sit in this traffic? This traffic jam is making me sick. I've been sitting here for hours. Be glad you're not the people in the car that caused the accident that caused that traffic jam. You know? Whatever it is you're going through, we need to be sure that our Father has a loving purpose in it. We need to learn to submit to His providential will when we don't understand it, when we don't like it, Let me give you a biblical illustration of a man who understood what submission was to the providential will of God, even when it meant great pain for him. 
Eli was high priest in Israel. In 1 Samuel 3, we learn how God revealed to the young child Samuel that he's about to kill Eli's two sons because they're sinful. Well, the next day, Samuel communicates this message to the aged priest. And it's kind of difficult to conceive of a more difficult message for a parent to receive. The message that his children are going to be suddenly killed. That'd be hard for any father to deal with. Yet this is the message given to Eli. So what's Eli's response when he received this tragic word from Samuel? What did he say when he learned this awful news? So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's Yahweh. Stop there. This is the key here, people. He said, it's Yahweh. Now, Yahweh includes the verb hava, and hava means to exist, and the letter yod as a prefix means he. So Yahweh means he exists. Now, if the verb is causative, it would mean he causes to exist. So both are true of Yahweh. He is the self-existent God who causes everything to exist. So that's where Eli's frame of mind is. It's Yahweh. You can't get any higher. You can't get any better. He's in control of everything. He causes things to exist. He's the self-existent one. So then he says, let him do what seems good to him. Hey, he's Yahweh. I don't have, you know, I don't know what's best. I don't know what's right. Believers, that's where it has to start. We have to come to an understanding of who God is and sovereignly bow before that will. It's Yahweh. It's the self-existent God who brought you into existence. Let him do what seems good. Because that would be the best plan anyway. He's way smarter than us, right? (laughs) Another biblical example of a life like this would be the life of Job. Now, here's what you've got to understand. According to Scripture, Job was blameless and upright. That's God's view. If ever there was a man who was might reasonably expect divine providence to smile on him. It's Job. Hey, God says I'm blameless and upright. Things should go right for me, right? Everything should be good. And for a time, things were great for him. I mean, the Lord blessed him with seven sons and three daughters. He prospered in business until he owned great possessions. But suddenly things changed. I mean, in a single day, he lost not only his flocks and his herds, all his wealth, but he lost his sons and his daughters. News arrived that the cattle had been carried off by robbers. Then news comes that his children had been slain by a cyclone. How do you receive this news? How would you receive that news? You just lost your job. Your bank account, it's all gone. The IRS took it. Guess what? Your kids have all just died too. How do you respond to something like that? Look at Job's response. Then Job arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head. Those are signs of grief. And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. The word worship means to give worth to, to give value, to give honor. He is saying, God, you're worthy. I worship you because you're worthy. In the worst situation you can imagine, he says, you're worthy. And then he says, naked... I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I'm going to return. 
Yahweh gave, Yahweh's taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Now watch. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wait a minute. Job just said, Yahweh took away. Yahweh did this. Yahweh killed my ten children. Yahweh wiped out all my money. Yahweh destroyed my life. But the scripture says, in all this, he didn't sin or charge God with wrong. Because God did do it. (laughs) It's an incredible attitude, people. Have you ever suddenly received really bad news? And just, you know, the kind that takes your breath away? Was worship your first response? (laughs) I was waking up early one morning by a phone call from my brother. When I answered the phone, he simply said, David, dad died. I was devastated. I hurt worse than I ever had. I just lost my father. But Job lost ten children and all his wealth. And notice that Job traced his afflictions back to the first cause. He looked beyond the Sabaeans that stole his cattle, beyond the winds that destroyed his children and killed them all. And he saw the hand of God, Yahweh has taken away. Now the health wealth preachers will never read this verse to you. Because God doesn't do stuff like this in their mind. Not only did Job recognize God's sovereignty, he humbly submitted to it. He worshipped. Because he knew God. And he knew God's sovereign. And again, when you know Yahweh, when you know who He is, He is God. There's a vast separation, people, between us and God. He creates things. He speaks them into existence. So his way is perfect. When loss after loss came Job's Job's way, what did he do? Did he cry about his bad luck? Did he curse the robbers? Did he murmur against God? No, he humbly bowed before Him and worshipped. Believer, we like Job need to learn to humbly submit to God's providential will. I mean, if we believe God is sovereign, If we really believe that, then every event is orchestrated by Him for His glory and our good. Then we learn to submit to those things. And it makes life so much easier. And you know, we don't have to be mad at other people. We don't have to be bitter against other people. You meant evil against me. You certainly did. But God meant it for good. So it's okay. All things work together for good. Well, let me ask you something here. If you don't believe in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to the lovers of God, His children, what do you believe in? Your other choices are fate. Are you just a fatalist? Whatever happens, happens and tough. You believe in chance? Well, it just happened that way. You believe in the impersonal forces of nature? What do you believe in? Your life is just kicked here and there by whatever happens? No meaning, no rhyme, no purpose? (laughs) Sorry. I like Romans 8.28 better. Believer, God has a purpose in everything that happens to us. And He is a loving, all-knowledgeable God who knows the beginning from the end. Our response is we just need to learn to trust Him. When those things come upon us, when those times of difficulty, we just need to learn to trust Him. God... You're in control. 
bow before His will, worship Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Lord, it's hard for us sometimes. We read these texts, we read these people, and they don't even seem real, Lord, that that Job could respond that way, that Eli could say, hey, it's Yahweh. Let him do what seems good. Father, I pray that we, as your children, would come to know you in such an intimate way that those are our responses, Lord. That we realize your sovereignty, we realize your goodness, your care for us, and we just humbly submit to you in whatever happens. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Oh boy, got some questions already. Good, good job, people. No, go ahead. Yeah, I have others, but not in this message. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I would go on to say God's sovereign over the plant kingdom. He's sovereign over the animal kingdom. You know, he's sovereign over humans and, and the will of man. Every, I mean, you could go through the scriptures and find it. He's just, he's just sovereign over everything, you know. And like I said, most people have a problem with that. The biggest problem, though, is the problem with God being sovereign over the will of man because they just can't. They can't handle that, you know. It's like we're special. You know, we're up there equal with God, so he can't dare affect our will. You know, it's just it's just nonsense. Fight against not only man, but the other things that he's already over. Uh, fight. Okay. <clears throat> Is that rain? Hello from Rick and Holly. Hey, Rick and Holly. The podcast, I know the podcast dropped last week about the round table that wasn't a table and wasn't round, but uh, on the millennium, I got some good feedback from people on that. Um, Rick writes, in Romans 2.14, when you mention the movement of the comma, it seems that the Greek transliterate uh, pronunciation, poieo, pushes the word do by nature. It seems the comma would only move based on the English version being used. No, uh, it's not, doesn't have to do with the English. There's no commas in the Greek to start with, okay? But the idea is, the whole idea of that text is Gentiles are doing, they don't have the law by nature. They naturally don't have it. It, was, it wasn't given to them. It was only given to the Jews. But they're doing these things because God, they become Christians. That's basically the bottom line there. So, you know, that's the issue. Again, punctuation, there is none in the Greek. And where it's put in the English does make a huge difference. Uh, 
this is from Sandra from California. She said, just a comment. This is why I'm comforted by the fulfillment in preterism. Yahweh has overcome the world, and so have we. Yahweh has overcome the evil one, and so have we. And in this present time and forever, we can be comforted in His everlasting kingdom. Amen. Amen. We can be comforted. Preterism is a very positive eschatology. We win. We won. It's already won. We're living in the kingdom. We're not waiting for anything. And it's, to me, you know, the sovereignty of God is a doctrine I used to fight against as an Arminian. I just didn't like it. It made me mad, you know. But once you really come to understand it, it's very comforting. I mean, how peaceful is it to know God's controlling everything and He loves you? Okay, that's pretty cool. I can rest in that. <laughs> uh, Deborah says, uh, note today, September 11th, Yeshua's true birthday. Amen. I mean, according to, you know, according to the stars, uh, Yeshua was born September 11th. So this is the birthday of our Lord. Uh, you know, we think of it in other ways. Of course, September 11th has some negative connotations for us, no doubt. Um, but yeah. The birthday of our Lord. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you for reminding me of that. You know, every year it seems like I forget about that. Um, Um, Sean and Rachel from Colorado says, Thank you, my friend. I lost my father, mother, and sister to cancer. So the fear of death is there often. Now I have five kids of my own and terrified something will happen. I have to hear these messages as a reminder. They aren't mine, and God is sovereign in every single moment and molecule. This gives me hope and peace. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean, for writing. Um, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, we can be controlled by fear until we sit back and say, God is in control. God is in control. You know, I mean, who would think that you're going on a vacation and you're going to go to the Bahamas and you're going to enjoy... People, if you've never been snorkeling in those waters, you you just can't imagine the beauty. You know, and it's worshipful because you're looking at everything that people don't see that God has created down there. But then one of God's creations comes along and takes your life away. You know, that's pretty devastating, but it doesn't matter where you are. You can be sitting in your home, you know, because you're a fear of everything. You'll die at home just as surely as you'll die in the waters of the Bahama or in the plane flying over. You'll die just as surely, okay? Because when it's your time, it's your time. Your number's going to be up. It's up, all right? I was in a plane crash, and I walked away from it because it wasn't my time. But when it is your time, you go. Like I said, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, we have people, they die in their sleep. Can't avoid sleeping. You know, you just have to live your life trusting God. He's in control. All right, someone asks, what about a time of backsliding? An addict delivered from drugs and then relapsed, is that God's will? Is it? Yes. Everything is God's will. Everything. You say, well, that's bad. Well, 
Maybe God's trying to show you you need Him to be victorious over that. Yeah, and who knows where it's going to lead, but that doesn't matter. Yet God is in control of everything. If something is out of His control, then everything's out of His control. Now, it's hard for us to understand because we want to view God as only good in our mind, so therefore, if something bad happens, God can't be involved in that. What was the greatest sin ever committed in the world? Hmm? What was the greatest sin, though? The greatest murder of all time, the Son of God. They killed the Son of God. They murdered Him. Was that worst murder of all time part of God's plan? Absolutely. Without that, guess what? We're all doomed. But that was the greatest sin ever committed. You can't go say, well, sin's not part of His plan. I don't like it. I don't understand it. But God's in control. That's just what the Scripture says. And, you know, I guess the sooner we understand that, the, the better it is. Okay, I'm not sure I understand this question. It says, my frustration is enhanced when my efforts at repairing the tractor's carburetor. How do I deal with this frustration? Uh, You go away for a while, take a breath. You know, when I'm working on a car and things aren't going my way, I stop and I thank God I'm not a doctor. Because if you got someone opened up on the table and you got that frustration level... You can't just walk away, okay? Thank God it's only a carburetor. Walk away, go sit down, chill, come back the next day, and take your time, okay? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how doctors, like I said, that's not a responsibility I would want. You got somebody opened up and you're all frustrated. This part's not going where it's both. Ah, no. Thank God for men that, women that God has equipped to do that. They have to have the understanding or whatever might pop in their head. They they have to know the reason why. But to me, in relationship to me, in relationship with my God, I serve is I don't have to know every single morsel of thing thought of His plan. I mean, like you said, to a point, you got to get to a point. You believe and you trust in His word. That's it. It's bottom line. You can't understand everything. You can't explain everything. Things are inexplicable at times. You know, they don't go the way you want them to. They don't go the way you think they should. All right. Um, It says, working on Preterist Project. Sheriff ordered us to leave at 12 midnight as the fire was near three days ago. We may return soon. Thanks, God, for firefighters and rain. We are okay, soon returning home. Love you from Southern California, Fairview 5, Ukrainians, believers, open their homes, and my family, great message, David. Amen. You know, the thing is, whatever's going on, whether it's fire, whether it's wind, whether it's flood, God is in control. And I'll tell you this. If you want to make life easier, live in obedience to the Lord. Because when you're not living, then He's got to discipline you, and that gets really ugly, you know? So it's just easier to live according to His will. And then even when things go bad, you're like, hey, God, that's cool. We're all right.